Uh, we're in First John 5, and as you're there, um, someone asked me, Scott asked me this morning, he said, now, Daniel, I can't remember the exact word he used, but Daniel, is this going to be like a real zinger of a, of a sermon? I said, well, you know, it's, it's kind of review. You know, the things that John is talking about are, are things that, that we've talked about before. And, he said, and, and Scott said, these are not my words, these are Scott's. He says, well, God knows how thick-headed we all are. So, um, I'm not saying you are thick-headed, but I am certainly a beneficiary of John repeating some things that he's talked about before, and as we, we come to the end of First John, he's in verses 18, 19, 20, he's going to use this phrase, we know, to begin each verse. And so these are some things that as we've, that John's saying, hey, based on all the things that we've talked about, here are some things we know, here are some things we can be confident of. On the basis of, of what we've been discussing, things we know that help us understand ourselves and our relationship with sin. And so, if you're there, and if you're able, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. First uh, John, chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 18, here's what John writes. We know, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understandings so that we may know him who is, in, who is true, and we are in him who is true, and his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. You may be seated. May God encourage us uh, through his word this morning. Uh, Let me pray for us as we keep studying his word together. Father, we do uh, know these things on the basis of you telling us them. We would not know these things apart from your divine intervention in our life. And we certainly, uh, Father, would not be able to understand them apart from your divine intervention in our lives. We pray that you would continue intervene this morning, that your Holy Spirit would work through his word so that we could know it and therefore know you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Three times, three times in the life of our church, we've had to do what I think is is possibly the most difficult thing that a church has to do. There have been three times in the six and a half years or so that we've been a church that we've had to come to someone who's a member, who we love. We've had to say, look, um, on the basis of you rejecting the gospel and em- embracing a lifestyle that's in direct contradiction to the gospel, on, on the basis of that, we, we don't have confidence that you have a relationship with, with God. It's a very difficult thing, a very heart-wrenching thing to have to say to someone that you love. We always do that with a spirit of gentleness, hoping that God would even use that to, to turn a person back to himself if they were in relationship with him. And, and if not, that God would use that as kind of a catalyst to cause him to say, well, I guess I'm not in relationship with God. I, I need to get in relationship with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But it's a very difficult thing. We've had to do it three times. Tell a person, hey, on the basis of your rejection of the gospel, your continued rejection of the gospel, uh, we, we don't believe that you're in a relationship with, with God and, and, and you can't be a member of, of Bethany. 
I'm sure in your, your personal life, you've encountered people in a similar situation, maybe a family member or a friend who at one time made a profession of faith in Christ, and, and yet, uh, as years went by, just ultimately ended up completely rejecting a lifestyle that would reflect a heart transformed by the gospel. It's terribly sad, right? What gives you the confidence that that won't someday be you? What gives you the confidence that someday you won't be the one turning your back on the faith and saying, you know what, Uh, instead I'm just going to pursue this this lifestyle of, of, of sin in whatever manner that manifests itself, materialism or sensuality or whatever, intellectualism that becomes an idol denying the gospel. What confidence do you have this morning that even though right now you're professing faith in Jesus Christ, what gives you the confidence that you will continue in that profession? I, th- I think as you come to the end of First John, that might have been a question that John's audience could reasonably ask as well. John has been telling his readers throughout this epistle, here are the tests by which you can, can know you're in relationship with God. And we, we've talked about these tests. We're going to do a lot of reviewing this morning. We, there's the, the truth test that John gives them. There are doctrinal truths that you need to affirm in order to to assure yourself that you rightly know who Jesus is and therefore can be in relationship with him and, and what it means to place your faith in him, to forgive you your sins. That's the truth test. There's doctrinal truths they must affirm. There's the obedience test. Uh, one must live a life that reflects a heart transformed by the gospel. And if your heart does not reflect the, the transformation that the gospel brings about, then you may not be in relationship with God. And there's this Love test, and a person who's truly in relationship with God is going to manifest itself and manifest that in the relationships with other believers. And if those things aren't true of you, John says, then you're not really in relationship with God. And therefore, the false teachers who've come into these churches in Asia Minor that John is ministering to, these false teachers who have taught wrong things about doctrine and wrong things about sin and wrong things about obedience and wrong things about relationships with other believers, those false teachers and the people who have left the church to follow them are not really in relationship with God. And so John's readers might legitimately ask, okay, John, we get that. We believe that you're right. We believe that what you say about Jesus is true. We believe that obedience is important. We believe that we need to love each other. We, we agree with you. We agree with all the things you're saying. Now, How can we know that what you've just described and what we've affirmed will still be true of us next year? You've just described, we're here in 1 John 5, and we've described a sin leading to death, and we've talked about how the sin leading to death is describing a person who's not in relationship with God. How do we know that, that I won't someday be out of relationship with God? Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 would say, hey, those of you who think you stand, watch out, lest you fall. How can we have confidence that we'll continue in the faith that this danger of sin that John has been talking about throughout this epistle won't someday overwhelm us? 
How can we know that? Well, the answer that we're going to talk about this morning, and again in, in two weeks, is the answer to every Sunday school question, right? <laughs> how can I know, how can I know that sin won't someday overwhelm me? How can I know that I will continue in the faith? And, and the answer is Jesus Christ. What you're going to see, as John kind of reviews what we know, is a very Christ-centered answer to this question, how can I know that sin won't overwhelm me? What John is going to tell us is Jesus Christ has completely rescued us from sin's curse and absolutely secures eternal life for us. That's kind of the main thing that I want you to grasp as we talk about these things that we now know. Jesus Christ has completely, thoroughly rescued me from the curse of sin and has absolutely secured eternal life for me. That's what we're going to see here in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. We're not covering new ground. We're talking about things we've already talked about already. Knowing things, being born of God, being in a relationship with God, being in Him, sin. These are things we've all discussed before. But as we close, the Apostle John, ever the pastor, gives us these three Christ-centered truths it should cause us to exalt in him as we think about our rescue from sin. Three things we should know. Three things we can say, I know this for certain, that gives us hope as we think about sin. So, what do we now know? As we come to the end of 1 John, what do we now know about ourselves and sin? Here's the first thing. The first thing that we know is that we know that we have a protector. We have a protector who keeps us from sin. Uh, Look at verse 18. John writes, We we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, as we talk about this idea of knowing, as we come to the end of 1 John, knowing that we have a protector who keeps us from sin, here in verse 18, there's three things that I want you to notice. The first thing that I want you to notice here in verse 18 is this really startling claim that John makes. He says this, he says, uh, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, you read that and you think, okay, uh, that's a little concerning because I believe that I've been born of God and yet sin is still a part of my life. In fact, what does that mean? Because earlier in chapter 1, John affirmed that everyone sins and a person who says they don't sin is a liar. So what does that mean? Well, John has talked about this before, right? Turn, turn back to 1 John 3. And in 1 John 3, we have a similar, a similar thing taking place. Look at verse 4. And remember what we talked about, this, this logical progression that John takes us through here in 1 John 3, beginning in verse 4. In verse 4, he tells us something about sin. He says, everyone who makes a, a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So what is sin? Uh, we've, sin is a desire, a commitment to live in disobedience to God. So here's how God would have us live, and we're saying, no, I'm going to live this other way instead. Sin is lawlessness, disobedience to God, rebellion. And then, he says this in verse 5, You know that he appeared to take away sins, in him there is no sin. So now, 
That's what sin is. Sin is disobedience to God. Now he describes who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ came to, to deal with sin. And Jesus Christ is absolute, complete, perfect righteousness. So he's the very antithesis of sin. Here's, here's sin, lawlessness, disobedience to God. Here's Jesus Christ who is perfect righteousness who came to deal with sin. Then you come to verse 6. No one who abides in him, kind of the same idea here as chapter 5, verse 18, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So follow John's thought here. Okay, here's sin, it's lawlessness. Here's Jesus Christ, perfect righteousness, who, who came to deal with sin. Now, a person who is in relationship with God has a new relationship to sin. No one born of God will keep on sinning. No one who is in relationship with him who is perfectly righteous will find lasting joy in sin. And so, what we talked about when we were in 1 John 3 is a person who is in relationship with God cannot be a person who, what, what John calls here, practices sin. In other words, a person who says, I'm going to live in lawlessness. I'm going to feel no remorse for living in lawlessness. This is who I am. This is how I'm going to live, and I'm not going to change. That's, that person isn't a believer, John tells us. There's an expression we talked about when we were in 1 John 3 that applies here in 1 John 5 as well. There's an expression that we've, you've heard sometimes uh, people use. It's the expression, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Now, that statement is a, a true statement, theologically. Once a person's saved, they're always saved. But I think that expression in our modern evangelical life and world has, has led to some very unfortunate understandings of what the gospel is and how a person comes into relationship with God. You see, sometimes people hear that expression, once saved, always saved, and they think, okay, well, what that means is that in a moment of time, I can, uh, I can pray a prayer, turn to a gospel track and go to the last page and, and just kind of kneel in just the right way and say those exact words on the page, and, and I'm saved. Or I'm at a church service, and they ask if anyone would like to be saved, raise their hand. I can raise my hand and I can be saved. Or I can walk an aisle or I can, can, can do this thing. And once I do this thing, then I'm, I'm saved. And it's kind of like I'm, I've got this contract with God that he can't get out of. I've trapped him. I can go live however I want and, hey God, sorry, but once saved, always saved. Is that how Scripture understands the gospel? No. And what, what have we seen in 1 John? How does a person come into relationship with God? They do recognize that they're a sinner. They recognize that what John says about sin at the end of 1 John chapter 1 is true, that they're sinners. And they recognize that what John says in 1 John chapter 2 is true as well. Whenever John writes in verse 2 of 1 John 2 that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, that is the complete satisfaction for our sins. And so a person says, I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ is the complete satisfaction for my sin. He is the one who completely removes the wrath of God by the basis, on the basis of his sacrifice on the cross. And, and now, what does a person do when they become a Christian? They say, I am placing all of my trust, all of my faith 
in Jesus Christ for my righteousness. Like all the songs we've sung this morning. I'm not coming to God saying, God, I'm a super good guy. You want me on your team. I'm not coming to God saying, I've lived this life. I deserve eternal life. I'm saying, look, I deserve your wrath, but your son, Jesus Christ, bore the penalty for my sin, and so I'm trusting in him. And then what happens? What have we seen in 1 John? What happens? I'm born again. I'm in Christ. There's this new relationship that I have with God. And now, and now I have confidence of my relationship with God. Not because of my works, but because of who Jesus Christ is. Because of this protector. So the first thing I want you to see in verse 18 is this startling claim. This claim that every time... And, and this happens. Every time I read through 1 John, I'm in 1 John 3, and it says that, that thing about uh, no one who knows him keeps on sinning. A person who keeps on sinning doesn't know him or, or has seen him. 1 John 5, 18, no one who's been born of God keeps on sinning. It should cause us to go, whoa, 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 let me, let me think about this. What is this true of me who is a sinner? So there's a startling claim. That's the first thing I want you to see in verse 18. The second thing that I want you to see in verse 18 is the power of Satan in the life of the unbeliever. He says here at the end of verse 18, the evil one does not touch him. He who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What we see there is that Satan has an incredible power in the life of unbelievers. Let me just give you one example from John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is, is talking to the Jews who want to kill him. And the Jews who want to kill him are talking about how they're children of Abraham. And, and Jesus says, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Jesus said, look, if you were Abraham's children, this is John eight thirty nine, you would do the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did, which leads to the obvious question, well, who are you saying that our father is? And he tells them, he says, verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus goes on, in other words, the evil one that John describes here in 1 John chapter 5 has incredible deceitful power over those who have not been saved. Now, here's the third thing I want you to see in verse 18. If it's true that this is a very startling claim, and it's true that Satan is very powerful, what, what gives us hope? What gives us any, any confidence that we can stand before God. Well, the reason is because he who is born of God protects us. Jesus Christ protects us. Let me just give you some verses that may comfort some of you who struggle with feeling secure in God. And being sure of your security as a, as a child of God. When we talk about salvation, there are both what you might 
call subjective and objective elements of our salvation and our assurance of our relationship with God. So objectively, we're in relationship with God or, or out of relationship with God. It's, it's not halfway or it's, we either are or aren't. And scripture describes how that relationship comes to be. But, but subjectively, sometimes we can, can feel that relationship or, or feel out of that relationship or feel secure, not feel secure. It's like kind of an imperfect example because I'm an imperfect parent, but think about my relationship with my kids. Uh, objectively, I love my children. Subjectively, they may not always feel like they're loved. Maybe I, I've said something, they've, they've misunderstood what I meant. Maybe I kind of was frustrated with them and so they, they took something the wrong way. Or, or maybe uh, I'm doing something as a parent that I believe is, is uh, loving and the best thing for them, and they have a slightly different opinion about whether or not that's the best way for dad to demonstrate his love, right? But objectively, objectively, I love them, and, and subjectively, my desire is that they feel that love. So let me read some things that we see in Scripture about Christ's love for you, who are believers, and what it means that he's a protector. You see, what it means is that Jesus hasn't just protected you initially from the consequences of sin, but, but it means that Jesus Christ will continue to protect you. And if you struggle with this, let me encourage you to write down some of these verses and, and look at them later. Here's what John 6.37 and following says as Jesus is, is speaking. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John ten twenty eight. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying to the Father says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent Verse 6, I have manifested, this is John 17, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. On what basis do we have confidence of having eternal life? We have confidence of having eternal life because God has given it to us through His Son, Jesus. Jesus says, I, I gave them eternal life. This is from Jesus. And He who has given us eternal life will keep us secure in eternal life. We see here in John. Philippians 1.6 I'm sure of this, says Paul. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make 
your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, okay, well, that's, that's a nice wish, Paul, but how can I know that I'm going to be kept blameless? He says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, because he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. 2 Timothy 1, 12, I'm not ashamed. 2 Timothy 1, 12, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day, what has been entrusted to me. 1 Peter 1.5 Those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 24 Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. How do I, what do I know as I come to the end of 1 John? How, what do I know about myself and sin? Well, I know as I come to the end of 1 John that I have a protector who is completely righteous, who is fully God and fully man, and he is the one who will keep me in himself. At the end of fifth grade, I was on a swim team in the summer and I was a I was small for a fifth grader, and there were I think the I think I was like it's fifth grade, and the, the part of the team I was on went through eighth grade. You compete with other other kids too. I can remember looking at some of these seventh and eighth grade boys and thinking they were like giants of men, right? And one one time there were three guys on our team, especially they're just really good swimmers, three or four eighth grade beasts, you know, who are just these amazing swimmers. And one time, I think one of the four guys was sick, and so the coach let me swim on a relay team with the other three. And my assignment was basically in the relay, don't drown. Get to that end of the pool and get back. Don't disqualify us and and don't drown. And I, I did that. These guys tore up the water, and our relay team got, got first place, my only first place ribbon that, that year. Right? And whenever I took that first place ribbon and, and put it on my, my shelf or something, I was under no illusion that I had had anything really whatsoever to contribute to that ribbon. When it comes to receiving the prize of eternal life, to continuing in the faith, we recognize that this is not me. In and of myself, I don't have the ability to to keep from sin, but I have a protector who, if I'm truly in relationship with him, will keep me secure in him. Here's the second thing we know as we come to the end of 1 John. Here's the second thing we know. We know we have a relationship. We know we have a relationship that rescues us from the dominion of sin. Look at what he says here in verse 19. It's very similar to what he says in verse 18. But, but in verse 18, the, the focus was kind of on this protector. Here, the stress is being part of one of two realms. And we know we're part of this other realm because of relationships. So here's what he says in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil. And so, John, as we've talked about before, every, you know, throughout the epistle, every chapter, he's drawing contrasts and 
You're either here or you're here. And he, in this verse, you're either from God or you're from the world. You're in one of these two domains. Satan, as the evil one here, this whole world lies under his power. He has, has influence. He has dominion. God has given him the ability to exert influence. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sin, which we once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Colossians 1.13 says he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We know that we're not part of this this other realm, because of the relationship we have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, another Christ-centered truth that we now know. Whenever you travel to another country, you can do a lot of things to accommodate yourself to that culture, to try to acclimate yourself and, and, and become part of that culture. You can maybe learn the language, at least some of the words of the language. You can learn the, the currency. You can learn some of the customs so that you try to commit the, you know, the fewest number of cultural faux pas as, as possible. But there's always a sense when you're traveling in another country that you're not in your country. Their culture isn't necessarily better or worse than yours, but it's, it's not yours. And as you're there living in it, you feel out of place. If it's true, if it's true that we're in relationship with God, what that means is that we're not, in ho- we're not at home with the world. And when it says that the power of the evil one no longer has dominion over us, it means that not only are we rescued from being, being forced to sin, but what I think it means also is this. Sin no longer has the ability to bring us joy. Sin no longer has the ability to cause us to feel delight like it once did. Is it possible for an unbeliever, let me put it that way, is it possible for a believer to, to live a worldly life for a period of time? Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and maybe some of you are, are there even right now this morning. But what is also going to be true? I guarantee you, you're not going to find delight there. Long term, you're not even going to be able to fool yourself that you're finding delight there. The evil one has incredible power over unbelievers. I believe that 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 this worldly system can really convince an unbeliever this is joy, this is happiness, even as they're experiencing utter misery. The evil one doesn't have that power over you who are believers. He cannot deceive you into believing that you're feeling joy long term. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we've been brought into this new relationship, a relationship with one who is without sin, as we saw in 1 John 3, 1 John 2, as we talk about him being the propitiation for our sins. And we can no longer enjoy the world as we once were able to. Here's the third thing I want you to know. 
as we come to the end of 1 John, third thing that John wants you to know, we know that we have an understanding that causes us to be in Christ. We know, he says in verse 20, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. As he comes to the very end of 1 John, John is talking again about doctrine and truth. He wants you to know what you need to understand, what you need to know. Whitney's grandfather would come up every so often years ago and would would help us with, with housing projects. And he had a saying that I'm sure many of you have heard before, measure twice, cut once. Measure twice, know it, then act on it. My sen- I, I love the sentiment, but mine was like measure 12 times, cut three or four, go buy another board, come back, measure a couple more times, and cut it twice. And use lots of putty and stuff. There are things that I like, I like to know, and, and so I, I appreciate that sentiment. And I, there, there are things that, that are out there that I, as I come into daily contact with the world that I just I wish I knew more and there's kind of some quirky things that I like to know so for example when I when I bought my running watch it has a little GPS thing in there and I wanted to know how accurate is this thing and so I I, I got in my car and I turned on the watch and I drove around with the odometer and, and so I, I was comparing the the watch with the odometer, and then I had two different numbers, and so I got another GPS unit, and I was comparing the three of them driving around, and I just wanted to know, like, how, how accurate is this thing? It kind of bugged me that I couldn't know. I have a, a toothbrush. <laughs> I have a toothbrush with this two-minute timer on it, but I want to know, is it really two minutes? And so, Often, I will check, you know, has the battery on this thing caused it to not still be two minutes? How close to two minutes is it? Is it over? I'm okay if it's over, but is it under? I want to get the full two minutes out of this toothbrushing thing. I want to know things. And I, okay, don't, I'm okay. Like, I know these things are quirky things, and, and I'm okay, I'm okay. If I keep saying enough, it's true. I'm okay not knowing some of these things. I know that they're not important things to know in my heart. But there are also things that are, that are crucial that you do know, right? That aren't just quirky things to know. Just like, ah, that'd be nice to know, nice to not know. There, there are things that are vitally necessary that we know and we understand. And, and I want you to see three things you've got to grasp here in verse 20 as, as, as we look at verse 20. First of all, we have to understand how important understanding is. When he says God has given us understanding, what does that mean? It means that God has given us this, this ability to, to, to grasp truth. Understanding here refers to our, our mental ability to, to take truth and, and, and grasp it, to enable us to have a knowledge of God and understanding that the world doesn't have. Now, is that important? What does the lawyer tell Jesus in Luke ten twenty seven about eternal life? And Jesus would affirm what he says here. He says, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's your, your mind is, is, is understanding, is grasping truth. The second thing, that I, so, it's, so it's vitally important, but what is this, what's the content that we're to grasp? Well, 
It's doctrine, right? What are the truths that we're supposed to, to grasp? It's, it's those things that we call doctrine. And the most important of all doctrine is this Christ-centered doctrine that John has been discussing throughout 1 John. He says, we know, we know what? We know that the Son of God has come. This isn't some guy that appeared to be man. He was fully God, fully man. We know that he's come. He's dealt with sin. And now we have this understanding so that we may know him who is true. Unlike these Gnostics or pre-Gnostics, that are these false teachers, they understand rightly who Jesus is. It's the image, as Paul would say in Colossians 1, Verse 15, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, what's what's the third thing you need to see here in this, this verse? You need to see that Understanding is important. The content of our understanding is is doctrine. And doctrine is that which serves as a conduit to a relationship. Doctrine fuels this relationship that we have with God. If you do not know who Jesus is, you can't be in relationship with him. But this knowledge of Jesus is designed to, to, to propel us into a relationship with him. Look at what he says again. He says... He's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. That know there describes this relationship. And we are in him who is true. And his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Doctrine here is not some abstract thing that allows us to, to argue over things. But it's this, this knowledge of who God is that causes us to be in relationship with him. Now, what else do we see here? We see that those of us who are in relationship with, with him are, are in Christ. We receive, once again, John talks here about eternal life. Not just quantity of time, but this quality of time in which fullness of being resides. I encourage you this year, as we begin this, this new year, I encourage you to make this a year in which you pursue an understanding of who God is. To believe that this type of knowledge is necessary to have kind of a God-focused goal as you pursue doctrine, to, to pursue it with humility, to study with prayer, to, to study as though your, your very soul depended upon it. How can we know? How can we know that we're in a relationship with God? And, and how can we know that, that someday that the power of sin won't overwhelm us and, and we'll begin to live in, in direct contradiction to the, say, the things that we say that we believe right now. Our confidence isn't based upon ourselves. Our confidence isn't based upon our parents, our pastor, our friends. Our confidence is based upon Jesus Christ. We have a protector who secures us. Through that protector, we have a relationship with him. We have an understanding, a of what sin is and who God is and the eternal hope that awaits us. The hope that we have, the answer to how can we know, the answer is Jesus Christ. And next week, or two weeks from now, we'll talk about 
how that answer, Jesus Christ, can be replaced with, with idolatrous understandings that all fall short of who God desires us to be. How do we enter into eternal life? We come into eternal life through Jesus Christ alone. How do we stay in eternal life? Through Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, the life that we have through him. Give us your grace to be obedient to him. Continue, continue to keep us in you through your loving, protective hand. We pray this in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen.